So anyway, next Sunday will be great. I hope today's great. Is today great so far? Lord, don't, don't let me ruin it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we once again focus our attention on you. And as, as has already been proclaimed today, we thank you for your presence. We thank you that you, uh, you don't hide from us. And then when, when we run after you, you said, seek me and you will find me. That, uh, that we find you. And more importantly, you find us. And even more importantly than that, you found us. So today we, we open up your scriptures and we, we take a look at what I believe your Holy Spirit would have us to look at. And I pray that as your word is expounded upon, that first of all, the words that come out of my mouth are your words and that they are anointed words. And second of all, that these words would be sharp, that these words would be living and active and that they would touch us in a way that we need to be touched today, Lord Jesus. I pray that where it's needed, I pray for conviction today. I pray for return and repentance today, and I pray for encouragement and hope as your word teaches us. I pray in the name of Jesus. Everybody said amen. Well, I have entitled today Christmas and the Flaming Sword. I noticed every now and then I take a look at uh, the Facebook page for Abundant Life Church. And uh, often when I put a title or when I, Anita Crosby actually puts the, the slide up uh, for the title of the coming sermon, often there'll be one or two. And if it's a really good week, three likes. Uh, <laughs> but I noticed this week there were none. And I wondered if people were scratching their head, what in the world is he going to do with a flaming sword? Well, the message today is that there was a reason for the Christmas event. As we move beyond Thanksgiving, and we should never move beyond Thanksgiving, by the way. I recall, as I quoted last week, the marquee on Cook's United Methodist Church says Thanksgiving is not a day, it's an attitude. It's a, it's a, a year-long celebration. But as we move into what we call the Christmas season, we need to remember and recognize there's a reason. Now, you know, the, some of you, if you haven't, I commend to you to go down here to 109 and see Chad, Chad's Winter Wonderland. Have you ever been through Chad's Winter Wonderland? Well, you should go. You can't miss it if you just go down Highway 70 and turn left on 109. You can't miss the glow. You can see it for miles around. One time Chad won third place in the country for Christmas light decorations in residences. But his next door neighbor, which I think Chad does this too, his next door neighbor out in their front yard is a really nice display that says Jesus is the reason for the season. And we could leave it at that, and there's no there's no uh, uh, minimal truth in that, but there's more to it than that. There's more to it than Jesus is the reason. But there is a reason for the Christmas event that we celebrate in the coming days, and we must never lose sight of the root reason for his birth. We should never lose sight of this. It's easy 
To see a babe in a manger, it's easy to get the warm and fuzzies. And I like warm and fuzzies. I don't like to get it too warm, but I like air conditioning. But anyway, it's easy to get into that thinking about Christmas, and we should, without remembering the root cause of the birth of Jesus Christ. John tells us in his first letter that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The reason he came was to destroy the works of the What was the works of the devil? We'll get to that in a moment, what his works were. But Jesus came to, to, to uh, alter that. Jesus came to destroy that. The writer of Hebrews, whomever he may be, said it this way, Therefore, the children share in flesh and blood. You and I are the children, the human race. We are the children, and we, we share in flesh and blood. And because of that, he himself likewise partook of the sound. In other words, he himself became a human being. That through death, he might destroy, the word, there's that word destroy again, the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. So Jesus came to counter the acts of the devil. He came to counter the kingdom of darkness and the effects that sin has on all the human race. He goes on to say, he came to deliver those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And you're going to love the next verse. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Everybody say, that's me. You are the offspring of Abraham. Galatians, I think, 3.28 teaches us that. But he, he doesn't help the angels, those poor angels, they're on their own. He helps us. And one of the ways that he's helped us was to come to earth to destroy the works of the devil who tainted the human race with sin. And so if you would turn in your Bibles, this can be real easy, to the book of Genesis. And uh, that's a, all the way to the left. Genesis chapter 2. And I'm going to read a series of verses. I'm not going to read a whole chapter or anything, but I'm going to spot check some verses here. As we go through, and you should see them on the screen, you do. And we're going to start in verse 15. And he says this. So if you would stand while we read the scripture. I'm reading again from the English Standard Version. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. By the way, I want to point out here that work's not a curse. Some people today think work is a curse. It was anyway, and the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in that day, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, skip over to chapter three, verse one. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. 
She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her. Don't miss that. And he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now just skip down to verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. It's interesting that God started a sentence there and never completed it. I'd love to know what the rest of that sentence was. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. You can be seated. The serpent was cunning and crafty. We know from other references, Hebrew, I mean, Revelation 12, there are numerous references. We know that this serpent was the devil. It was Satan. Now, whether or not Satan had occupied the body of a serpent or he came in the form of a serpent, I don't know what to tell you, except that the serpent was Satan. We know that from, from the rest of scripture. He was cunning and crafty and he's what you could call a sneaky snake. Because he came saying half-truths, almost-truths. Did God actually say? Now, you've heard me say this, and it's, it's, uh, it's no secret. But Eve did not hear God actually say that. When God gave Adam the order to not eat of the tree of good and evil, Eve had not been created yet. It was only Adam. It was Adam's responsibility, and evidently he had done so, to communicate to Eve as the head of the household. See that tree over there? Ah, leave that one alone. But it's interesting that as soon as the devil begins to tempt Eve and she wanders over towards this tree, that Adam's right there with her. Okay. Did God actually say... Did you really hear him say that? Well, of course she couldn't say she did. The Spirit-Filled Life Bible notes tell us that God, the Satan was telling her that God is withholding a good thing from you, which is self-rule, in order to keep you dependent on him. God doesn't want you to eat that because you're going you're to be dependent on, you're going to be able to rule yourself and not be dependent on him anymore. You can just do your own thing. You can be self-reliant. The tree of life in the Garden of Eden is where we experience the life of God. I almost put in there the eternal life of God, but it occurred me to me there is no other kind. The life of God is eternal. And so the tree of life and where we partake of the tree of life is when we experience the life of God. And they were welcome to participate and partake of that tree in the, in the life of God. The tree of knowledge, on the other hand, was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it represented human autonomy. It represented as the devil was tempting her and them. It was represented their being able to be autonomous and to self-rule. And to be independent from God. 
This was naturally tempting to Eve, the Bible says. As Eve listened to Satan and Eve observed these trees, she rationalized herself into disobedience. And may I say to you today that each time we find ourselves in disobedience, we have rationalized ourselves into that place. We've made excuses. We've, we've said God didn't really mean that. We've said, well, that can't be what that means. And yet that is what that means. And Eve began to rationalize and she saw that it was good for food. Immediately after Satan tells her, you'll be like God. She says, well, that thing looks like it's got some good food on it. That's rationalization. She saw that it was pleasant. She saw that it was desirable to the eyes. She saw that it would make her smart. Well, when when she partook of the fruit, when she handed it to Adam, the Bible says immediately, and we just read it, their eyes were opened. They understood something that they had not understood before. They saw something that they had not seen before. And because of that, they went and hid themselves For the first time in their short lives, they were encumbered with self-awareness. They had no thoughts whatsoever up until this point that were self-referential. Every thought, every action, every word they spoke was God-referential. It was was toward God. They were so uh, um, non-self-aware, they were naked and didn't know it and didn't care. Didn't matter because they were so God aware. They were completely unaware of themselves and occupied with this constant awareness of God. And yet, Timothy, Paul writes to Timothy that Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Adam was not deceived because Eve was deceived, but Adam's sin was conscious and willful. Adam was not deceived. Adam made a conscious and willful decision to disobey God. Eve was the the uh, product of a sneaky snake who was crafty. It's interesting. It says the serpent was more crafty than any creature God had made. And yet Adam knew better. Adam did hear God's voice. When he said, don't partake of that tree. And yet he made a conscious, willful decision to disobey God. To not step in and say to his wife, you know, God said, did God actually say, Adam was there. Adam could have said, yes, he did. I heard him say it. He didn't say a word. He participated. The result of that action became severe consequences for all of humanity, all of mankind, because from that moment, from that moment, the race of human being was human beings was tainted by sin. Whether we like it or not, when we were born, we were born in sin. We were born as sinful creatures. Ephesians 2 teaches us that by nature, we're children of wrath. But, but why? Because our nature was corrupted in the Garden of Eden. 
Our nature became a nature of sin, and therefore we, by nature, are children of wrath. And the Scripture says in Ephesians 2, like the rest of mankind. Doesn't leave anybody out. We're all natures. We were all destined for God's wrath. All. Because of the disobedience of Adam. And I'll say this, you've heard me say it a hundred times. People say, well, you know, why did Adam mess us up like that? Why did he, why did he, why did he and Eve mess up and if that and messed up? And I've, you know, we would have done the same thing. We would have just done it sooner. We can't, we can't take that attitude. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. He who doubts human depravity had better begin to study himself. If we don't believe in human depravity, then we need to start looking in the mirror and look at ourselves and look at our own actions. And, of course, you've heard me say, if you doubt original sin, just observe a baby. Most selfish human being ever faced. John Calvin went further, and John Calvin called it total depravity. Any good, any good Calvinist knows the tulip and the T in the tulip acronym is total depravity. And so now here we find ourselves with a human race that sinned, that has disobeyed God, that has become self-aware instead of God-aware, and is now corrupted to the point of total depravity before God. And so God had no other choice but to expel Adam and Eve from the garden, to expel them from the garden forever, and to put some cherubim, I was asked earlier today, the cherubim are simply just angels, to guard the entrance to the Garden of Eden. But God also put a flaming sword to keep Adam and Eve and anyone else, you and me, out from the garden to protect the tree of life. God could not have a sinful tainted, corrupt creature going, partaking of the tree of life. He said, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. So therefore, it's protected, guarded, the cherubim and the flaming sword guarding the entrance. What I want to tell you that what they really lost that day was their communion with God. Remember, they used to walk with God in the cool of the day, enjoy fellowship with Him. And at this point, that was gone. They went and hid themselves from God. And, of course, God said, where are you? And we know that God, when He said, where are you? He he knew where they were, but He wanted them to know where they were. Then we then we see coming into the... the History, the divine plan. And if someone quoted me recently and quoted me accurately when I say that Jesus was never plan B, it was never that God had a plan and man messed it up, so God had to come up with another plan. No, Jesus was slain before the foundation of the world. Jesus was always plan A. Always. And when he showed up on the scene, it wasn't because there was an accident. It was because it was the divine, sovereign plan of God. Publilius Cyrus said the judge is condemned when the guilty are acquitted. The judge is condemned when the guilty are acquitted. What does that mean? What it means is 
God's justice, God's just nature demands that the sinner be punished. God cannot, uh, cannot stand in the presence of sin. God cannot consume sin. God cannot look upon sin. Something has to be done and the sinner has to be punished. And so therefore, it's the wickedness of sin and it's the holiness of God that made Christmas necessary. It's the wickedness of, of, of the human race that had been corrupted in sin, but it's also the holiness of God that could not deal with us in a sinful state other than to get us out of it, that required him, required the Christmas event, which once again was not an afterthought. If Jesus was slain before the foundation of the world, it is, it is necessary that he was born before the foundation of the world. The, so Jesus comes, the Christmas season comes, and we must remember that the, what's the motivation? The love of God was the motivation God had in sending his son, John 3.16. Galatians 4, 4, we're not turning. It says this, that just the right moment, God sent his son. Everybody say it, just the right moment. Not only was Jesus never plan A, I mean, I'm sorry, plan B was always plan A, but the day he was born was no random date. Now, we don't know what that date exactly is. Some think it's in the spring. We celebrate December 25th. I don't have a problem with that. But whatever day Jesus was born, that was not a random date, but it was God's sovereign choice before time began. I know we can't comprehend all that. But at just the right moment, at just the right moment, the Amplified Bible says, when the proper time had fully come. A lot of your versions that you're holding in your hand will say, when time came into completion. In other words, it was time. You know, you, you look at someone say, I think Bob Mumford said something one time, but that Jesus was a nine month baby. Of course, today I think babies last 10 months. I don't know. They changed it. <laughs> they're bigger when they're born these days, I think. Okay. That wasn't funny. <laughs> what happened during those nine, 10 months that Jesus was in the womb of Mary? How many people perished? Let me just tell you, God is not a God of expediency. We're people of expediency. We, we tap our foot in front of the microwave. God's not a God of expediency. He has a plan. He has an order. He has a time. And he works within that. Time came to completion. Don't turn, just listen. But in 1 Peter 2, uh, yeah, it's up there. Peter writes these words. He, Jesus, committed no sin. Don't forget that. He, the Lord Jesus, committed, everybody say, no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. Don't forget that it was deceit that caused Eve and Adam, Eve to sin and Adam to join her. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. 
When he suffered, he did not threaten. You remember what? Remember it says he could have called 10,000 angels, the old gospel song says. But continued entrusting himself to him, the Lord God, who judges justly. He himself, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, Isaiah says, by his stripes, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep. But now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You were straying, but now you've returned. Isaiah said, all we like sheep have gone astray, each having turned to his or her own way. That's the epitome of lawlessness and sin. And yet Jesus came and bore that so that we could return to the shepherd of our soul. He came down to us. He didn't, he didn't force us or wait for us to come to where he was, but he came to where we were and where we are. He lived as one of us. He came as a human being. He was still God, but he was also a human. And then he substituted for us to take our place. In the place of punishment. And he made a way for us to return to the shepherd of our soul. He made a way for us. Where did he make a way for us? To return to the tree of life. When sin com- was committed, we, the tree of life was guarded. It was guarded so that sinful, corrupt creatures could not partake and live forever in that state. Could not happen. We enter back into the proverbial garden through human and godly perfection. We enter back to that place of partaking of the tree of life. The only way you can get there is to be perfect. Be without sin. I just read Jesus Committed no sin. And so the only way to the tree of life is to be someone who is humanly perfect and who is godly perfect. We had a problem. We had a problem. Adam and Eve, prior to their sin, was in that state. They were in the state of perfection. I was on a job site one time as a teenager and the boy told me, he says, there's only been two perfect men born ever, and one of them died on a cross. And one of them sinned in the garden. And no longer was perfect. No longer was in that state. The good news is, saints, that you and I are joint heirs with Jesus. Romans 8.17 teaches us, Just that we are joint heirs with Jesus and he is the perfect man who is also the perfect and holy God. He's the sinless man. And of course, he's God who is always sinless. There is no shadow of turning in him. He is that perfect man. And you and I, by virtue of our being born again by the spirit of God, we are now joint heirs. Everybody say joint heirs. Joint heirs with Jesus Christ, holy man, holy God. Who does have a ticket to the tree of life? 
He has an entrance into the tree of life. And because you and I are joint heirs with him, guess what? We get a ticket too. We got a ticket. In Jesus' prayer that some call the high priestly prayer, he said, you gave him, the son, authority over all flesh so that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. Now, I want to say to you today, and I wrote an article recently in the Chronicle. Some of you might have read it within the last few months, pointing out that eternal life is not just living forever. That's part of it. He tells us what eternal life is in the next verse. This is eternal life, that they may know you. And the word know there is a relational term. It's the same word that appears in Hebrew when it says Adam knew Eve and bore Abel, bore Cain, both. It's the same word that appears when Joseph... The son of, G, of the father of Jesus and Mary, it says Joseph knew not Mary until she had born a son. So eternal life is that you may know God, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. It's a relationship. Now, the byproduct, a great byproduct of Having a relationship with God the Father and Jesus the Son, a great byproduct is we never die. Oh, sure, yeah, one day someone uh, will be standing in front of your casket, maybe, or an urn, maybe, but you won't be there. (laughs) You you won't be dead. You're not dead. I've presided over many, 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 many funerals. And, and almost everyone, I'll say almost, but almost every one of them, I can tell you that those people were not dead. Their body had quit. Their body had failed. But they didn't die. They just got a transfer of residence. Eternal life primarily is relationship with God the Father. What did Adam and Eve lose when they sinned except that relationship? That communion with God the Father. John goes on to write in his first letter, the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. There is no life apart from the Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. Regardless of what pundits... And debaters want to say today, there is no other way to life in God except through the Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said this, I came. Now, when Jesus said, I came, you want to hear what he's going to say next. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Again, it's more than just living forever, but it's experiencing the life of God. In our lives, every day. I came that they may have life and they may have it more abundantly. So we see the Garden of Eden 
We see the cherubim, and then there's this matter of this flaming sword that was placed at the entrance of the garden to guard that tree of life, to keep you out, to keep me out. And the only one who could get past that is one who was perfect and one who would pay the price, and one came to pay that price. In his sermon entitled, East of Eden, Jonathan Edwards said these words. Christ undertook to lead us to the tree of life. And he went before us. Christ himself was slain by that flaming sword. And this sword, having slain the Son of God, appearing in our name. Don't miss that. The Son of God appearing in In your name, in your place, who was a person of infinite worthiness, that sword did full execution in that. And when it had shed the blood of Christ, it had done all its work. And so after that, it was removed. And Christ, arising from the dead, being a divine person himself, went before us. And now the sword is removed, having done its execution, already having nothing more to do there, having slain Christ. There is no sword now. And the way is open and clear to eternal life for those that are in Christ. No more sword. No more flaming sword at the entrance. No more cherubim. Jesus has paved the way. He paid the price. He took the punishment of the flaming sword. Because he took the punishment of the flaming sword, the sword was taken away. Jesus rose from the dead and he gave us our tickets. He said, follow me to the tree of life. Saints, that's what Christmas is. Oh, thank God Jesus came as a baby and And I'm sure we'll talk about that in the coming days. Thank God he came as an infant. Thank God for all of that. But let's never forget why he came. Let's never forget what Christmas really means to us. What it really means to us is this statement. He was born to die. Happy Goodman used to sing a song called Born to Die. He was born to die that we might have life. You think about that. Jesus was born. It wasn't his birth that saved us. It was his death. We just read the verse. It was his by his death that he destroyed the works of the devil. He was born for the sole purpose of dying in our place. So that you and I don't have to get, worry about cherubim or flaming swords or anything else that would keep us from the life of God. We have access. We continue to have access. We didn't just get eternal life when we were born again. We still have eternal life, and it's bubbling up in us every day. From With joy, we draw from the wells of salvation, Isaiah says, constantly. Why? Because eternal life is continuing. So when you say Merry Christmas this year, man, can you really say, I've asked the worship team to come back up. There could be someone sitting here today 
who, as you're listening to these words, there could be someone sitting here who you realize by the conviction of the Holy Spirit that you've never really visited that tree of life. Oh, you might be religious and you might have done religious things. You might even have gone to church. I know a lot of people that, God help me, that that are very religious and very active, and yet it's just pretty obvious that their heart has never been changed. You may be that person today. I don't know. You may be a person who's grown cold in your faith, and you've just sort of take, taken for granted, or maybe you... Maybe you've enjoyed a certain measure of self-rule. <laughs> maybe you've enjoyed making your own decisions. Maybe, you, maybe you've enjoyed being self-aware and, and only calling on God when you think you need him. I don't know. Whatever the case may be, uh, we're going to provide you a moment here when they sing. And uh, to either come for prayer, come to the altar, or deal with God where you're sitting. But don't leave here. If God, if the Holy Spirit is working in you, and a lot of times you, how can I tell? Well, that heart's doing a thump, 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 thump. If that's the case, don't leave here without dealing with God and and getting it right. The flaming sword's been taken away. Use the access. Amen. Just stand and sing with the worship team. Okay, don't make me sing this by myself. I've carried a burden for too long on my own. I wasn't created. And I hear your invitation to let it all go. Yeah, I see it now. I'm laying it down. And I know that I need you. I run to the Father. I fall into grace. I'm done with the hiding. No reason to Soul needs a friend, so I run to. 